You are listening to the Bondzilla Podcast. The Bondzilla Podcast is a bi-monthly analysis of two of the cinema's longest-running franchises, James Bond and Godzilla. This week, James Bond heads up to the stars, not to a galaxy far, far away, but to save the human race from utter extinction, 1979's Moonraker. everybody hi yeah and welcome to the bonds of the podcast we are back we're back that famous james bond line that actually nick you may not know this but that line was actually in a godzilla film first yeah yeah it was in a uh, godzilla we're back a uh dinosaur story a, di- uh, <laughs> a dinosaur star wars story <laughs> oh yeah we are back yeah i mean so happy new year happy everybody and a whole new year of james bond and godzilla movies galore um and Pussy i get yeah, yeah. <laughs> so are we ready to talk about moonraker uh ready um i'm here Okay. I'm not sure if I'm ready. I'm not, right. I'm not honestly, Nick. I'm not sure if I'm ready for this year. But doesn't that make me mo- most ready? Because mm-hmm. you know, the best way to be prepared for the unexpected is not to be prepared at all. Right. Yeah. That's exactly <laughs> what everybody tells the you. The more you're prepared, the more likely you are to fail. Because if you're prepared, and something goes, and wrong. something unexpected happens. Then what are you going to do? All that preparation was for nothing. Mm-hmm. You're like, I prepared for the expected. Yeah, but I guess you could just prepare for the well, unexpected. Expect the unexpected. We're yeah. gonna expect, but we can expect Moonraker facts <laughs> today because I got them right here. The best facts. <laughs> I got the best best info on Moonraker right here. All right, James Bond, he's back. Roger Moore, he's back, and uh, with him is, is this? No, not our last Moore movie. We still no. have one more after this. <laughs> We got a lot more than one. <laughs> Wait, do we? I thought it was only the one more left. No. Really? Yeah. Hmm. We've got... So I, qu- this, I quit. We've, <laughs> we've, got, we've, we've got three more more movies what? after this. You... <laughs> Wait, hold on. Before we move forward, because it's not really a big deal, this movie, because this will come up later. Okay. How old is Roger Moore? By the time of this movie. I'll calculate that for you by the time we get to the okay. movie itself. I'll make sure to, to let you know. You know what? All right. You continue. I'm going to look this up. Right. All right. So, ready to talk? I'm going to give you those facts about Moonraker. Yes. So, we're coming off, remember, The Spy Who Loved Me. Go back to that episode. It was a great episode. Uh, but The Spy Who Loved Me being one of the more successful of the Bond movies. And now we're at a point where we just were at, uh, you know, Man with the Golden Gun being, could this be the end? Whereas everybody now sees Bond is back. Bond is an established franchise. We're ready to get into the next one. United Artists is ecstatic. Cubby Broccoli is excited. Uh, and we are ready to go. So, uh, Lewis Gilbert does return uh, to direct this movie. Um, very excitedly as well. He enjoyed his time on Spy Who Loved Me. And he wants to do at least one more Bond film. Uh, and more. this is the final film of his initial deal. 
So essentially, when he signed at back, all the way back at Live and Let Die, he had a four-film deal, but they could have dropped it after three if the parties weren't happy. It was kind of like an option for a fourth movie. But all parties are happy here, so more gladly comes back. Jan gladly brings him back for his fourth Bond adventure. Uh, so, as we noted at the end of the last episode, originally, at the end of The Spy Who Loved Me, it was announced that um, the next Bond film was going to be for your eyes only. Mm-hmm. This wait a minute, Nick. This movie isn't for your eyes only. It is not. This movie is Moonraker. It Nick, is. what happened? Well, well, um, <laughs> there happened to be a little film from 1977 mm-hmm. called Star Wars. Ah, Star Wars. Uh, Never and, heard of it. And to a lesser extent, another movie that came out in 1977, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I know that one. That's the uh, R2-D2 one. But essentially, because both Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind were big, huge, major film successes, Mm -hmm. uh, Cubby decides to change course and go with what was Ian Fleming's third book, Moonraker. Oh. So, So the reason that Cubby wasn't going to adapt Moonraker originally is that he is not a fan of the Moonraker book mm-hmm. uh, because he feel he felt that the Moonraker so the Moonraker book the story of it is basically um, a businessman takes a rocket hostage and holds it over London and Cubby always felt that that was very small potatoes for the Bond franchise that you could have gotten away with that in like the Doctor No era but once you kind of got to Goldfinger and Thunderball, you weren't going to get away with someone taking a satellite, taking a rocket, and holding it hostage over the world. Right. Which is funny because that plot ends up being used for a Bond movie down the line. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, uh, Cubby wants it to be a completely original story because he wants to take the inspiration from Moonraker for the space stuff, but more so than anything, he's confident now that uh, after The Spy Who Loved Me, which was also mostly an original story, He's more confident in his Eon team to not depend on the uh, the the Ian Fleming books, uh, and kind of training for the future. Since since the next couple films are going to be based on the Bond short stories, they do have to expand upon those stories anyway. So the only thing that is kept from the novel is the name of the villain, which is Hugo Drax, mm-hmm. the Destroyer, right? Who ends up being in a space movie, indeed. There's so many references. Yeah. It's uh, five, was it five space degrees to Moonraker? Indeed. So um, they start working on this script. A man named Christopher Wood does the scripting for this movie. Um, initially, they have plans to, they want to go to India and to actually film at the Taj Mahal, but they have issues with this one. Uh, fitting that into kind of the idea of the plot. They because have. Bond movies are known for going as smooth as they possibly can. Right. It's about um, time we ran into some production issues. But uh, so instead, they decide to um, set a lot of the film in Brazil, um, Italy, and of course, outer space. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the main. So, uh, but we will see India sometime down the line in the right. Bond franchise. The script initially, even when they do it, they know that this is going to be an expensive one mm-hmm. uh, because there's outer space. Yeah, I got to go to outer space. Or Not at least, good tax or at least present it that they're going to outer space. Yeah. Funny you should mention tax incentives. We're going to get to that in a little bit. Oh, man. Um, taxes, I know. They're very excited. <laughs> um, so the script, uh, the production team at Eon. Which, oh, no. Okay, go ahead. I'll mention it later. Um, Budgets the script at $34 million, mm-hmm. which is the equivalent of the budgets of the first six Bond films combined. <laughs> so this is a big, big raise right. in the stakes mm-hmm. and the budget right. for the Bond team. 
the so, budget and the stakes. So the have initial never been plan higher. is they're going to hire a, an American special effects company uh, to do the special effects. But the problem is when they go to all those American special effects companies, the offers are absurd. They're expensive. Even they're deals that would even raise the budget. And even one of the companies that would remain unnamed in all sources uh, wanted two percent of the gross for Moonraker, and they were like, "No, we're not going to do this." So Cubby decides they're going to do all the special effects with their in-house special effects team, which presents a challenge for them because the special effects team at Eon is most used to doing um, the practical effects, like the big explosions and all the stunt sequences and stuff like that. They haven't really done very much optical effects. Mm -hmm. So uh, they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with that and how they're going to actually present the film in space and how how they're going to represent that. Uh, But meanwhile, while they're doing that, there's actually a little bit of a bigger issue for Cubby and his team in that uh, British tax laws Mm -hmm. did change, which meant that filming the film in London and at Pinewood would make it even more expensive than Mm -hmm. it already is. Uh, And so they decide instead to move the production to France. So what you're telling me is like this is not the only space movie that has been kind of hindered by taxes in some way. No, it is not. (laughs) Because we have taxes here. We have trade routes in Star Wars. And then five degrees back to Moonraker. Uh, Yes. Five space degrees back Um, to Moonraker. So Cubby knows that Ken Adam has worked in France before. And so Cubby asks Ken Adam, if we work in France, can we make that big budget Bond movie without losing any of the quality? Mm -hmm. And Ken Adam's like, I'll need you to rent out every soundstage in France to get this done. (laughs) And so it is done. Wow. The Bond team, Eon, rents out every single available film stage Jesus. in France. So they're building these sets, and and Cubby, uh, or sorry, uh, Ken Adam is talking to one of his friends in the French film industry, and they're gonna make it an official co-production with with the French government mm-hmm, and, right. and get all those kind of benefits from doing that, mm-hmm. uh, which means a partially French crew. And the French uh, filmmaker says, you know, I know you do a lot of overtime. You work a lot of weekends uh, in, over there in England. Mm-hmm. Here, you're not going to get away with that. You know, right. people like spending time with their families. They, there's a lot more regulations. You're not going to get away. And then Cam's like, okay, well, I'm not going to force anybody to not work, but usually Bond movies require a lot of overtime and mm-hmm. a lot of weekends. But it turns out that the the French were so excited to work on a Bond movie because it was the biggest production that had ever come to France. It was, it was a Bond movie. You right. know, it was like kind of a big major franchise. Uh, so what they would end up doing is that on Sundays and weekends where they would be spending time with their family, they would bring their families to the soundstage and hang out with them there so that they can all share the joy of working on a Bond movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll get to the cast and send some production stories. Roger Moore is still Bond. Roger Moore is still Bond, yes. He's, Who is, is uh, four, was 43 years old by um, the time this movie came out. So, yeah, so he is 43. Yeah. He's pretty old. This is, again, the last film on his original contract, mm-hmm. uh, but he is still having fun with these movies, so he decides to come back. Uh, we do have the regular players, you know, Q, uh, Desmond Leland, Lois Maxwell, back as Penny, and in a bit of a sad turn, mm-hmm. uh, this is the final movie for Bernard Lee mm-hmm. as M. Uh, he uh, films this one and finds out shortly after that he has uh, uh, cancer. <laughs> okay. So back to the casual cancer dropping. Um <laughs> And he tries to, to get a little ahead. He tries to film some of For Your Eyes Only, even though he is sick. But he ends up 
<laughs> Can I just? I want to rewind that. We just legitimately laughed that this. We just scoffed off that this guy just got cancer. I know. After yeah. watching that. Um, but uh, so this is his final performance as. Yeah, okay. Um, We're assholes. Oh, we got some new cast to talk yeah. about. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So. Michael Lonsdale mm-hmm. plays our Hugo Drax. He is a French actor, and he's basically a required hire because of a French co-production. They require one of the major roles to be cast with a French person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was a good friend with Louis Gilbert, um, and he was a bilingual new French and uh, English. So basically, it was just like, yeah, we'll, we'll put you in the movie. Mm-hmm. We'll, make you, we'll make you our Hugo Drax. Um <laughs> And we have Lois, <laughs> which goes to show like the uh, the uh, the amount of attention that they give to the the, the villains. <laughs> yeah, of this. yeah, you can be the villain if yeah. you want. <laughs> uh, Lois Chiles as a ho- Doctor Holly Goodhead. Yes. Um. So her <laughs> casting was partially inspired by a chance encounter on an airplane. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lewis Gilbert and Lois had the same flight, and they happened to be in assigned the seats next to each other, and so Lois. Uh, was pitched the movie by uh, Lewis Gilbert, and at the time she was like, oh, I don't know, I'm kind of, I just come back from production. I just want to go home and chill out with my family and my friends and stuff. But after she got back, she's like, Oh, this could be fun. I, I wanted to be in a Bond movie. This is this, you know, big movie like this is kind of fun. So again, just kind of a chance encounter, and she was, she was it. Now my question is, <laughs> do you believe that they were aware of the name that they gave her? <laughs> oh, the the writer confirms it. Okay, because. In the movie, this is her name, but it's never said or treated with any sense of irony. Yeah, so uh, Christopher Wood uh, said that he loved coming up with the name because it was such a Fleming-esque double entendre. Yes, Yeah. yeah. Uh, and Lois says that she always loves having one of the more lewd, quote-unquote, Bond names. No, because there's another one who's named Pussy Gore. She said one of, not the Okay. Most. Uh, but the a big thing that happens in this movie yeah. is the return of Richard Keel's Jaws. Yes. Uh, Jaws is back. As I mentioned, they filmed two endings of Spy Who Loved Me. They mm-hmm. filmed one where Jaws dies and one's yeah. when he returns. And they ended up putting the returns ones in, uh, or <laughs> Jaws returns, the ones where he ends up living in. Right. Uh, because they went with the ending where he just flies off in the TIE fighter. Yeah. Right. Or, yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, or swims off. Yeah, in the tight. It's, it's either near or there. Um, <laughs> well, he is. But he is they, Jaws. So they added that back in after test audiences really responded to Jaws, uh-huh. and after the Spy Who Loved Me came out, uh, Eon got a lot of fan letters from children uh, who said that they loved Jaws and wanted to see him become a good guy. Yeah. In fact, Louis Gilbert's son or grandson, excuse me, Louis Gilbert's grandson said to him directly, "It's like, why does Jaws have to be a bad guy?" Mm-hmm. And so they decided to bring back Jaws for this movie and give him a, a little bit of a bigger role in the arc. Jaws spoke to all those little kids who were teased in school for having braces. I think, I think like the, yeah, the, they like the teeth and stuff. And yeah. they like the, uh, they like the, I mean, he's got a unique look. You know, he's kind of a larger than life character. And I think that that's what audiences responded to. Mm-hmm. All right. So with that, let's get the production. Okay. <laughs> all right. So let's start with the beginning. Let's start with the opening, uh, opening sequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the opening sequence is a Michael G. Wilson idea. Again, Michael G. Wilson becomes the main producer on the franchise. Right now, he's just kind of a hand at Eon. Um, and he had this idea, this vision of Bond falling out of a plane without a parachute and having the fight to get the parachute. So it's an, a good idea in head, but it's uh, there's a little bit of complications with, with filming it. 
One that's not too hard to solve is that basically you need a parachute that's small enough to fit underneath someone's clothes. So it, it looks like someone it doesn't have a parachute, but then actually has a parachute. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more complicated one is shooting it. Because with this type of thing, what you want to do is you want to have someone with a camera on their head. Uh, but the problem is with filming with those big wide-angle wide lens Panavision cameras is that they're very heavy. And the idea is if you pull your parachute, the whiplash with the extra weight on your head might cause you to break your neck. And you don't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. We don't want any accidents on this movie. So for a while, it looks like this, this idea is not going to go anywhere. But one day while they're in, uh, when they're looking at the sound stages in Paris... Michael G. Wilson is just kind of going through these, kind of walking down the street, going through these shops, and he spies this really interesting-looking Panavision camera in the window of a shop. And it looks, it's not like a heavy one that, that he traditionally uses. Uh, he, it's a light, plastic-looking one. So he goes into the shop and inquires about it, and the shop owner says, oh, it's an old uh, test Panavision camera that they made, they prototyped, but never really released. Uh, so they sold off all the extra versions they made of it and it's just kind of been sitting in the shop and this kind of fixes the issue because they they bought the lens and they kind of made a lightweight camera to hold it uh so that it was light enough for the cameraman to actually put it on his head and actually shoot the scene mm-hmm. um but they're still it's still not easy to shoot that scene so first of all uh the cameraman decides to ease himself from the burden of possibly still breaking his neck is that he ties a rope around his own parachute so that when he releases it, it releases a lot slower. And that ends up working. That's all good. But the main problem with it is that because of the way that skydiving works, they could only get a few seconds of film for each dive before they had this put their parachutes out so that they could safely land on the ground. So uh, John Glenn, who's the editor and assistant director on this movie, takes control of the sequence. And it ends up taking a total of 88 jumps to film the entire sequence. So basically, they do it way before production because Cubby's like, if this doesn't work, you know, we can shove it to the side. We can come up with a new opening sequence. But John Glenn decides he puts it. He tells exactly what they need on every take, and he edits it along the way uh, to make that opening sequence as impressive as it is. Um, so yeah, I thought that was really cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, Eighty-eight jumps. Yeah, that's a lot of jumps. Well, yeah, because that was going to be my first question about the movie. Because so we've had a lot of cold opens, or like the first opening mission mm-hmm. with a Bond, and this was the one I was I was actually very impressed by. Yeah, and you could tell that you know now that we know the production and the budget on, it, I thought like this was really effective, and I was like, wow, did, like did, like was this was the technology just up to this point where you can make this real or was this actually like a real thing yeah. that they did? And oh, they don't. It, it was very, I would say like, this is a step up from the big jump, the ski jump yeah. that we it's saw. A, it's a nice, like kind of taking it up another notch. Yeah. Yeah. Because the other one you could tell was like, we have to do this stunt. We have to get it right. And then they do nail it, but you know, that's all they can get this yeah. one. It seemed like the, the, there's the, a lot of know, thought that goes into yeah, it. And it, it was, and, it was really effective. And so John Glenn gets a lot of praise for this sequence from the internal uh, bond team for taking control of it and, and making it as effective as it was. Mm-hmm. And he'll get heavily rewarded for that. As we'll see going down the line for mm-hmm. the bond franchise. So mm-hmm. John Glenn is a name to remember. Next one. I want to talk. John Glenn. Okay. Next one. I want to talk about the gondola chase. Yeah. Oh wait, we we can't 
we let's talk about the behind the scenes, but we can't talk no, yeah, about yeah. what it actually is. So there's a is. gondola chase in this movie. Okay. Right? <laughs> so um yeah, we won't talk about the actual content. Oh boy. <laughs> uh so originally it was an idea for a motorcycle chase throughout Venice mm-hmm. because there's a lot of bridges and a lot of narrow streets. So yeah. people thought that would be cool. But then it kind of evolved into like, well, we could do something different with the boat chase. Why don't we do this whole gondola thing? Uh, the problem was for them on this one is that they had the custom build their own gondola mm-hmm. because every uh, the the gondola people in 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 Italy are <laughs> yeah. very protective of their gondolas. <laughs> They're very personal about their gondolas, so nobody wanted to kind of give up the, the family just, gondola. I just love the, you know those gondola people. You got can't don't step on their. Turf. So they built this kind of custom made gondola and they put a 125 power hor- uh, horsepower engine on it. Uh huh. But the problem is, is that gondolas are not built to go that fast. Yes. So yes. basically, they they it starts off really well and then just kind of peters out and just kind of sinks into the water because of just nature and physics and stuff like just, that. Just, yeah, exactly. Uh, so there's a scene where they have to actually have a hovercraft element of it come underneath the gondola. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so they do it with more on the boat, and the the, the again the initial hovercraft element comes up way too fast mm-hmm. and knocks Roger Moore off the boat and dest- destroys his uh, $40,000 suit yeah. that he's wearing because it's just soaked in, in, mm-hmm. in this greasy water. Right. Um, but uh, they also had a tough time with the tourists of Italy. They all kind of wanted to watch this thing and mm-hmm. even the police weren't helping with that. So wow. uh, they eventually just got through it. But uh, that was that. The world of gondolas is a tough world, Nick. All right. So we got two more things. Mm-hmm. We got the Rio sequence, and we got about the actual how they did the space stuff. Mm-hmm. And then we can get to the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in Rio, they have two major sequences to film. One is the cable car fight, which is actually filmed on top of two cable cars. moving cable cars. Mm-hmm. It's a dangerous sequence because... They're on top of two ta- cable cars. Cable cars, <laughs> and because of the nature of the cables that the cars are attached to, they can't really attach themselves to anything because they have to maneuver around these cars while not getting tangled up in the cable themselves. So mm-hmm. it's very careful, um, very deliberate in how they they do it. Um, but it's still, again, the Vaughn team does not skimp on their stunts. Mm-hmm. They are all in on making those stunts as real as possible. And I give them credit for that. Uh, but the, the more famous story from the Rio is the, uh, the boat chase on the waterfall. Mm-hmm. So they go to uh, the Ngazu Falls, which is the second largest waterfall in the world. There, but the biggest thing that happens, so they have this whole plan about how they're going to get the boat off the falls. So they eventually they do this thing where they have a driverless boat and they push it forward and they're ready to film it going off the falls. And it gets stuck between two rocks right at the top of the falls. Mm-hmm. Like basically it's like teetering over and it's too dangerous for anybody to get close. They attempt, for some reason, they attempt to put a helicopter and they have someone on a rope uh, a rope ladder and they're trying to like push the boat off and the guy almost falls off the rope and eventually they're like, it's a wash. <laughs> we're not going to be able to do this. Uh-huh. And they were worried that the boat was just going to be stuck there forever, but they went to film some reshoots the next day and saw that the boat had naturally fallen off mm-hmm. uh, sometime in the night. Um, but they decided that it was just kind of fate that allowed them not to do it, so the boat falling off in the movie uh, is actually just on a miniature. Gotcha. Um, but they had a lot of issues overall with that waterfall sequence, and it was supposed to be a lot bigger. 
uh, and a lot more detailed of a sequence, but because of the nature of the current and the issue, the, the time they spent trying to get that boat off the waterfall, it's just kind of, uh, even Cubby uh, admitted that it was kind of not a wasted effort, but it was just kind of one of the few failures at, 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 at producing a vision that the Bond team had ever had. Uh, but the main... But you know, Nick, what does any of this have to do with the moon? I thought the moon was in space. So, yeah. So, the mo- the, the third act takes place... I am a great co-host. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> the moon breaker sequence yeah. and the space sequence all comes in the third act. And it's one of their biggest visual effects sequences since the ending of Thunderball. Mm-hmm. Which is, again, you mentioned very... It's kind of very similar to those. Oh, things. the ending of this movie is space Thunderball. Yeah. Um... So the main effect that they use is uh, rolling back film. Mm-hmm. Is this a technique where you shoot an effect and you roll back the film, mm-hmm. and you shoot another effect and you roll back the film, and then you shoot another effect, mm-hmm. uh, which is very difficult because you got it's a very calculated process because you can't have things overlapping with each other. You got to make sure every little bit of piece is uh, in the right place mm-hmm. because then it could look but like what, wait but i don't understand what's the purpose of rolling the film back because so you shoot like you're basically shooting on a blank screen yeah and you so for example first thing you shoot is uh oh you mean they're sh- are they shooting all the elements separately yes but on the same film yes Ooh, okay all right yeah yeah, yeah. you got it so yeah, yeah. so no, they roll it. back the film it's all on the same film yeah yeah remember this is when they use film yeah <laughs> Now they would just do it in these newfangled computers nowadays. Yeah. So, um, let's see. What else we got? Uh, so space. Space. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's that's the main element they use. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of it is Ken Adam designed, and so you get to see a lot of those great sets and stuff like that. Um, when, they, when Bond trips to zero gravity, it's the largest zero gravity simulated zero gravity ever and it was very complicated the film as well because you had everybody on wires and yeah i was want to get about to ask if it was wire work wire work and so it's it's all wires and so people want to get the hangers wires tangled up and anything like that so it's all kind of big like mm-hmm. big like that um and the, and i and i will say all very effectively done yeah like i was waiting because i knew i was fairly uh familiar with this movie but i was waiting for a lot of the space stuff to look worse yeah, than, it, than it actually is yeah. yeah uh and the same thing when they're shooting the big kind of laser space fight mm-hmm. it's the kind of same thing where they take a lot of miniatures of people right and that's how they kind of do that and then they get the close-ups in of, of people in space shoots yeah uh so at one point they have to destroy the big satellite mm-hmm. and they're trying to figure out because they got again it's one thing you got a model you got one take at destroying it what's the most effective way of showing it kind of exploding so they put the model in the middle of a of the soundstage at Pinewood, and the head of the visual effects department just takes a shotgun and just starts shooting the hell out of it. <laughs> that makes sense, actually, when you look at how this thing. Yeah, and so that's how destroyed. they got the uh, the yeah. destruction of the space station. Yeah. in in the movie, which is also like I have to say, really effective miniature work as well. Like it 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 it, it all works. Yeah. Um. So that's pretty much it mm-hmm. um, about Moonraker. I also should mention, I'm going to save this aftermath, but I do want to mention this is the final uh, film for Ken Adam as a production designer on the Bond franchise. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, this is a total Ken Adam movie. Just the set, the set work of, um, you know, all of the space stuff is, is total, just big Ken Adam stuff. And I've said before that he's kind of a hidden hero of, of the Bond franchise, and I think that this is a good movie to kind of show that, you mm-hmm. know, him, this and Spy Love Me are two of his 
greatest masterpieces in terms of his Bond set design and you know he really sets a standard. So. Well, Nick, I will be the judge of that as we talk about Moonraker. Moonraker. That's not the song, not but the it's the same singer. <laughs> as this is the first joint venture between our two countries, I'm having it patched directly to the White House and Buckingham Palace. Well, I'm sure Her Majesty will be fascinated. We have audiovisual. Ah, at last. <laughs> My God, what's Bond doing? I think he's attempting re-entry, sir. And the cut just happened. It's it's time for the moon, Moonraker. Hey, guys. Mo- oh, welcome back. I thought I was singing the song. Oh. I was singing the Moonraker song. It's time for the moon, the Moonraker. Let's rake that moon. Yeah. Let's get your tools and rake the moon. Yeah, so that's the opening song. It's not the opening song. Don't be a loon. Just rake that moon. But it is sung by Shirley Bassey. Now stay tuned. Uh, which is, it's her third and final Bond song. Uh-huh. Uh, we started before in Goldfinger. Yeah. And uh, Diamonds Are Forever. Yes. Um, I feel like this is, I think like her songs. Those are, those are like the three most precious minerals. Diamonds, gold, and the moon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Because it was like in that in that movie, that Christmas movie with Jimmy Stewart. Remember when he like threatened that girl? He's like, I'm going to make you eat the moon. Remember that? Remember that scene? <laughs> I guess, yeah. Maybe I'm reading. Am I reading it wrong? <laughs> am I reading that scene differently? I think so. I think it it might might be a little bit. <laughs> okay, uh, but, but like- I was excited, and I still am excited to continue on this unofficial season year two of, mm-hmm. of the podcast. Uh, but that being said, what when we were watching this movie, I did question: Am I ready for this? Am I ready to hop back in the Bond universe? Because I am not sure, but. My thoughts on Moonraker is that it is extraordinarily fine. <laughs> is what it's I not, would say. It's not a uh, not a bad take. It, not a bad take. It is. Uh, it's, it, I can say without a doubt, as I was uh, reviewing and looking at my list of these movies, that it is very much one of the another middle one. Mm-hmm. It's right in the middle, right Indeed. there. Indeed, because I would, yeah, it's it's Moonraker is interesting because it's one I've I've seen a couple times. Uh, it's one of those ones I think I think the thing about Moonraker is that it has strengths and weaknesses as as many movies do. I think it's an easy for me it's like kind of an easy just it's an easy movie to yes. put on yeah. and watch. Yeah. It's like not aggressively bad. Mm-hmm. It's not like incredible, but it's it's ni- it's a nice movie to watch. But there there is one element of it that kind of put it a, a little bit above our more recent watches of yes. Bond movies. Yeah. And that was that this one really wasn't that offensive. Not <laughs> really. really. really wasn't anything offensive I mean, about it. Bond is a, is a little bit sexist. No, but here, here's what I'll say about this. So this is another movie in which every woman he meets, he just sleeps with. Oh, yeah. And, and it's to the point that at least in this movie, it's just kind of like... All right, we the audience knows it's going to happen. Everybody seems on board. All the women seem yeah. on board for it. So, and it's not even it's not done in any gross way this mm. time. So at this point, I'm just kind of like, well, at least it's not offensive. Yeah, this time. it's it's not it's not particularly. Even though Bond is like kind of very smarmy about like, oh, a woman doctor. <laughs> when it's like you just like you just had like an encounter with like a. a it, within the context of the movie, a yeah, great yeah, Russian yeah. spy. You've seen like 
women in these movies do stuff. Yeah. Like, they're not, like, you know, they're not always the most competent women. They're not written competently. But, like, you've had, like, some women who have been, like, kicked your ass. Mm-hmm. And you've had women that are, have have been kind of major roles. You, you married Tracy, who is a very smart woman. Yeah. And you're just like, oh... I didn't expect a female doctor. Ooh. Yeah. So it was kind of odd to see like Were you Bond like that. expecting a dude named Dr. Goodhead? <laughs> exactly. Or maybe he did. Maybe he was and expecting like, like this like egghead yeah. type. And I don't mean like egghead like the slang term like smart. I'm talking about like Marvel comics. Like egghead. he actually has like an egg shaped or like Or like a doc, like Dr. Eggman. Yeah, type. exactly. Yeah. Maybe that's what he was thinking. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, we'll talk about Holly in a little bit. But uh, but basically, yeah, but 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 that was my that was my biggest takeaway is that there was nothing it was definitely eye rolling but there was nothing extraordinarily like offensively sexist or racist about this one yeah yeah which which makes it again an easy watch yeah which is like that's our that's our uh, criteria now apparently yeah. for these movies oh, but your criteria <laughs> now who played um uh the the head head lady. Good head. Oh, uh, Lois Charles. I thought she was she was actually pretty good. I like this. her. I like her in this. Yeah, yeah. She's, because she's a very she she, hel- she holds her own. She holds her own. Uh, she's good actor. She's um, I think like again, it's not necessarily she she's she's a Bond girl that does get a moment. Yeah, you know what I mean. Because a lot of times what'll happen is that even like you know I'll say like even as much as I enjoy like the beginnings of the character of Pussy Glow, one of the things I said that I don't like about that character is that they don't give her a chance to have her own little moment. It's right, just kind of, right, right. she gets, again, she has that weird scene in the barn, and then she just kind of is off to the side. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I said, like, Anya gets some moments, too, but I'll admit, like, at the end, Holly gets to help in battle. She actually gets a, well, a chance to be that, a, a competent helper for Bond. That was the biggest thing, is that they, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't remember any moment like this, but I don't remember any moment where they devalue her contribution as much because oh, no, again, not really. my, my point my point being like remember what was it in the last one oh uh, yeah in spy who loved me in spy who loved me what what was her anya. name anya yeah like i liked her but i felt like even in that movie like they would have moments where it's like wait i thought she was supposed to be like this badass military right, yeah. person and like why can't yeah, she handle there, this there are moments where she's a little like there are occasional moments where i felt like she could have done more like well yeah totally but i didn't but, feel but, like but like yeah you're right there's yeah. never a moment where she's completely devalued or she's completely incompetent right like the the most is like when she when she's kind of in the uh when they're doing the uh, cable car sequence she's like a little bit more frightened than you'd think well, but, but like no, but she kind of gets in with the fight she's got like the chain oh yeah but, but no but she yeah, eventually yeah. gets into it yeah and then like yeah but and what i did like is like even at the end when it's like he's like uh we're gonna throw bond out the airlock and then but that that would be a moment in every other bond movie where the villain's like and we're going to keep this girl for for a prize or whatever oh, yeah but yeah. Uh, this movie they're just like no we're gonna throw you both out the airlock so mm-hmm. i just like that at least this movie had a little bit more of a like, oh, they're right because another movie would have definitely been like, oh, like he he's creating the perfect race and she's gonna be my partner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, which um, but but I well, I did like that, and in a way, I would argue that their intimacy towards the end of the movie is a little bit more earned for me because it's like at least they kind of. You know, it was like they're kind of like flirtatious partners right. this time and around. And it's also coming yeah. out of, you know, this whole thing about everybody's going to have sex. Right, exactly. Same. Which I guess we should talk about what the plot of this movie right. is. <laughs> All right. So the beginning of the movie before yeah. the sky jump, uh, the skydiving sequence, um, 
a shuttle, uh, the Moonraker, right. which is uh, the British government is loaning from the United States, mysteriously disappears. So, okay, I have a question. Yeah. Nick. So, and this is going to sound really stupid. Okay. Potentially really stupid, and I should have done my research. I meant to do it, but I didn't because I'm not that good at my job. Um, but this movie opens up with the Moonraker shuttle is being transported on a plane. Mm-hmm. My question, and I wrote this note down, is, is this a real thing Absolutely. <laughs> that happened? Because I had that thought because I'm like, this was also in Superman Returns, mm-hmm. and I just thought that was something for Superman Returns, and then it happened in this movie. I'm like, wait, is this something that they actually used to do? Oh, they, they did it a couple years ago. Wait, but like they flew the plane? Yeah, they, they... With the shuttle on it. Yeah. I had no idea this yeah. is what they actually do. Yeah, because that's when they were plan- to, when they were transplanting the one shuttle to go to the museum here in L.A. It landed... They, they, they towed it through the streets to get it to the airport, but the, to get it here, yeah, it's on a plane. Oh, they were taking it to an airport? I thought they were just rolling it oh, <laughs> across no, no. the city. Oh, no, no. No, they were taking it from an airport right, to right. a museum. Okay, but it was on a plane. It was on a plane first. Like on top of the plane. Yes. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I have to admit, that scene was awesome because what they did is they infiltrated the Moonraker and then they flew off with the Moonraker and it just destroys the, the plane, plane behind yeah. it. No, it's, was, it's a good yeah, plan. Yeah, no, it's cool. Um, so, yeah, so basically Bond is uh, – it's not necessarily Bond is sent to investigate a world domination plan, but they're just trying to figure out why the Moonraker disappeared, where it kind of went, and his first lead – is to go to the man who originally built the Moonraker, mm-hmm. uh, the Moonraker shuttles, which are multiple ones. Right. Uh, which is, again, uh, Hugo Drax of Drax Industries. I will say, in classic Bond fashion, and as I've always said, I am not a very bright person, but this in classic Bond fashion with me and all these movies is that it becomes really easy to lose the thread of the plot in this movie. That is the one thing about Moonraker that I will even admit <laughs> is that... <laughs> I, I see the through line, yeah. but this is, like, because I figured that a lot of these Bond movies are long, and, like, maybe, like, a lot of them could lose a, a couple, could use a stand to lose it's a couple by minutes. by the time you get to, like, the the waterfall chase in Rio, yeah. that's that's when I'm like, all right, wait a minute, so where does this fit into well, finding out who stole is, the is Moonraker? Moonraker's plot could have been simplified, yeah, yeah, because yeah. the thing is, it's like, he's going to a lot of places, doing a lot of spy work, but basically, like, all right, well, he goes to Hugo Drax's place, and he... All right, Hugo Drax's place, he finds that there's something in Venice. And then he goes to Venice. Mm-hmm. And then he finds all the glass stuff, and, oh, he finds this secret thing. And, oh, wait, oh, well, the thing that... That leads him over to Rio. Right, And in right, Rio, there's yeah. this poison plant, and he's got to find the poison plant. Um, so, but, but it's just like they... The, the, this is one of those ones, as much as I think it's a fine, good... Bond movie, yeah. Uh, that it's the one, one of those that you can kind of feel the length a little bit, and if they kind of trimmed some of that excess fat. I think right, it would have been right. a lot more of a streamlined well, especially movie. because like at a certain point, it's like, all right, this is more, this is definitely like meant for a set piece mm-hmm. a little bit. But okay, this should have been a segment that we should have started a while back. I'm going to pitch it to you right now. Okay, pitch it to me. It's called year two. Huh? It's year two. We can add segments now. Okay, it's the segment where I try to explain 
Or you would confirm to me as I explain it what the villain's plan was. Okay. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. All right. So this is the villain's plan. And this is mostly for clarity and also for the hyperbolic comedy of me explaining what a Bond villain's plan is. Because as we have said in the past, that we actually think that the Bond franchise may have a villain problem. Yes, we've discovered this over the course <laughs> over the course of the first year. Everybody talks about being a Bond villain. Well, you don't want to be a Bond villain because most of them are not great. It's more of like a Bond villain plan rather more than the villain. Yeah. Like oh, th- yeah. Those are Very more true. crazy and iconic than the actual the villains actual themselves. Villains All right, so... Now, confirm this for me, Nick. All right, yeah. So the Bond villain's plan, who's, what's his name, Jebediah Drax or whatever his name? Hugo Drax. Hugo Drax. And he he looks like a tall uh, Peter Dinklage. Yes, he does. That's that's a perfect description of him. Uh, I actually thought he was quite good in it. Like, he, like, you know, not too much to do, but I thought he played the part enough. I would say I would agree with that, is that he doesn't really get a lot, again, he doesn't get a lot of scenery to chew, but yeah. like the occasional time he does, yeah, he I think it, I think he does works it well. So his plan is first of all, I don't know anything. I don't know what the plants are. are okay, no, I'm gonna just go out on a guess. Okay. This this is my crazy guess. All right. So he's going. He's using these plants to make a chemical weapon bomb. Mm-hmm. Okay. Am yeah. I? Oh, am I close? You're getting there. Yeah. Okay. All right. So he's gonna make a chemical weapon bomb and release three of these chemical weapon bombs. Um, to wipe out, to destroy the planet. It's, Meanwhile, yeah. what he does plan on doing is he has made a space station where all these different moonrakers take up these beautiful Ryan Reynolds, Scarlett Johansson, hot Hollywood people yeah. up into space, and they're they're all horned up. And his plan is for all of those people to basically, like procreate into a master race mm-hmm. for them to return to the planet where all the normies have been obliterated and they're going to start society again yeah uh the only thing you miss is that he has six total bombs but only releases three before his gotcha okay yeah, yeah 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 but that you you pretty much <laughs> okay. also you gotta uh, so the we should mention uh should confirm as well that the the uh the chemical weapon bombs only kill humans they okay that part i missed completely yeah, so yeah. They, basically that's the whole thing is that they only are poisonous to humans they yeah. don't kill any plants or animals right so because he's like we don't need to destroy the environment we only need to destroy the people who yeah, are yeah. destroying the environment yeah. which i have to admit like when ultimately they reveal that's the plan i'm like oh that's cool enough mm-hmm. that, that that works that tracks yeah drax <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's... It's a plan. That, that, that is a plan, um, and it, it's kind of interesting, and it, it tracks. Um, so, there's a lot... Is I mean, there? <laughs> is there a lot in this movie? There's, there's, there's a lot of moments to discuss, things to bring up. Um, For one, one of the things to bring up is that there's a... <laughs> okay, this shows a little bit of racism on my part, so I'm just going to own up to it because okay. I think you have to own up to these things. Yeah. So, uh, Do- uh, Drax's. <laughs> let me let me read you my my notes. Give me the notes. The note says, "Fuck this ninja." <laughs> and oh. what I mean is that this is what I was like. All right, this movie is already eye- a little eye rolling. All right, his his like goon, his initial goon is like just this Asian dude in a kimono 
who's always trying to kill Bond, and I really shouldn't call him a ninja because that's racist. Yeah. I will call him a samurai. He is a samurai. Because he tries to, what is it, like, uh, is, is, like, like, like is it, it's not keto, or is it something like with the with the sword? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and he tries to kill Bond with that earlier. Uh, even though this character has one of the best moments in the film where he tries to kill Bond in one of those zero-G rotation chambers, where yeah. and he tries to, like, put it all the way up to, like, this many zero Gs than to kill Bond. And then Bond foils his plan, and there's this brief cutaway to this guy's face, and he looks so dejected. Oh, yeah. Not surprised. Not like, oh, man, blast Bond. No, he's just like, aw. (laughs) Like, he was really expecting to see Bond, like, melt, like, in the zero G stuff. Um, Yeah, he's played by a man named... uh, Tashiro Suga. Yeah. And he was actually Cubby's actual like Taekwondo instructor. Okay. That also makes the character also the character's name is Chang. Chang, okay. So he is so out of place in this movie because he's just some <laughs> Asian dude in a kimono walking around. And it's not like this guy is like has any other Asian flourishes. It, it was so weird. We also get some good stuff earlier in the movie, uh, when Bond goes to uh uh Drax's house, essentially. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um Bond uh, is invited by Drax to go pheasant hunting. This scene is awesome. So, first of all, it also shows, again, Moore's interpretation of Bond, where he says specifically that he does not like hunting for sport, um, which, again, goes into that character. Unless it's women. <laughs> like, come on. Which, again, goes into that character choice that he doesn't like necessarily to kill. Right. Mm. Um, so, the scene is ultimately, like, so Drax is like, oh, co- come now, Bond. Like, you know, like, just just take a whack at it, essentially. Yeah. Takes, shoot a pheasant. Yeah, shoot a pheasant. Gives him the gun to shoot a pheasant. Meanwhile, Drax has a man in the trees somewhere, mm-hmm. like just in the surrounding area, pointing like, you know, like basically sniping out Bond, has him in the crosshairs and is about to take him out. So you're like, oh, man. So I guess like the what I assumed is like so when Bond shoots, like he's go- Bond's also going to get shot it's like, to hide, like, you know, kind of like the gunshot or whatever. Yeah. And they're going to kill Bond in that moment. Pheasant flies up. Bond takes the shot. Misses the pheasant, and yeah. then Bond just walks, and then Bond's like, "Oh!" And then Drag's like, "Oh, I guess you missed Mister Bond." Then it cuts to the man, and Bond just looks <laughs> with the gun like, falling out of the tree. And Bond just with the smug look on his face, like, "Did I?" Yeah, and that, just walks away. That was badass. I have to admit, like that was one of those moments because it's it's interesting because as I've said many times, Bond is a character. Where sometimes it can be hard to be like, oh, yeah, what a badass. Like, mm-hmm. because, like, just the movies could be problematic and just the way he treats people and women, it could just be so gross. Yeah, especially those earlier films. Yeah. yeah. And because, like, this movie is a little bit more devoid of the grossness and, you get this, ha- yeah. and has those badass moments that you can actually get on board with this guy. Like, I was like, I, this I, is probably the most I've been on board with Bond as, like, the hero of the story. So, I mean, that so that part worked for me, and, uh, and I was looking at just my order of notes uh, when he finally goes on the gondola. Yes, so oh, let's talk. Let's talk. Gondola let's talk scene. about the gondola sequence. And I wrote down coffin on my on my note. Remember oh right, the, yeah. Remember the coffin? Yeah. There's so another, he's on a gondola. There's a funeral gondola that I can only assume that's what it is. It's a funeral gondola. Yeah, yeah. With a coffin at the top of it, and one of the henchmen. The the well, first of all, the coffin slowly opens opens up with all these weapons and swords on the door of the gondola on the door on the on the door of the coffin 
the henchman leans up and then another compartment of knives and swords pops out from the coffin and the guy takes one of them and just starts tossing them <laughs> on his boat. <laughs> Kills like the driver of the gondola tries to kill Bond and either Bond, does Bond shoot him? Bond shoots him, yeah. Because I couldn't remember if he took also one of the no, knives. No, Bond shoots him. Okay, because it's very, so Bond shoots him, the guy like dies and lands so hard in the coffin that the yeah. coffin uh, roof drops, and now he's basically going to be buried at sea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then Bond takes his gondola, and yeah. he starts, you know... It's a nice gondola it's chase. It's a nice gondola chase. Yeah. It's nice. I, I, uh, I but approve. then we get to the big moment where the gondola can, reaches land. Can, Nick, can we talk about the pigeon? <laughs> the double-take pigeon. The So I knew about this. Like, this I knew, and as it was coming up, I was like, oh, wait, it's in this movie? Yeah. So there's a scene in this movie where... The gondola turns into a hovercraft, goes up onto into very populated area, like a cafe type yeah. like area, and starts going down the streets. And it's one of those. And first of all, there's like this goofy music that plays, like it's like like this this weird like circus music, or just like this very like happy music starts playing. And it start. It's one of those bits where it cuts to everybody, where they're like, "Whoa, what's that? Oh my god!" Like, yeah, including, this guy. including the same guy who uh, incredibly looked at his wine in the previous movie. Yeah. when the Lotus came on land. Yeah, the the classic like, "Oh, I gotta st- I gotta quit drinking." Yeah, so and he's like, been in two straight movies. Will yeah. we see him in a third? Who knows? And then it cuts to a quote unquote shot. <laughs> <laughs> of every first, everybody's looking at this surprised, including a close up of a pigeon <laughs> that does a double take. And by does a double take, it is the most horrendously forced edit I've ever seen, or at least one of them, because it's clearly like what they did was. They just took a shot of a pigeon looking one way and turning its head, and it's this really awful like edit of like reversing the shot real quickly to try to force this pigeon to do a double take. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it's so it is insane. It is am- crazy. It is amazing that that shot made it into the movie because like the thing about like the slide whistle <laughs> that we talked about that's kind of like a goofy stylistic choice. That's a little dumb, but kind of endearing. Like, this was like, that should have been done, been seen, and then never made it into the movie. <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> because That's charm. But Because it's not even like, but I, does it? It's just kind of like this terrible effect shot. Oh, my God. Oh, the double take the, pigeon. But that That's being classic. said, we're still talking about it, and it's still yeah. a really great moment. So should we talk about Jaws? Yeah, let's talk about Jaws. Let's uh, talk about Jaws. Jaws is just in this movie. Like, he's basically Wile E. Coyote yes. in this movie. That's a good app. Yeah. yeah. So basically, he, how it ends is that he's kind of now a, a henchman for hire. Yeah. So he appears in the opening. And they introduce him just appearing in the movie. Yeah, he had, yeah. The, he, he, he appears in the opening sequence with the free fall and falls into a circus. Um. And then he just shows up working for Drax later. So he's basically kind of like after Strongberg died and Spy Loved Me, he's just kind of become this uh, henchman for hire. Mm-hmm. Um, not a hero for hire, henchman for hire. Right. I can see what you say that Jaws is just in the movie, but I do think that like he still is used effectively with, with action and fighting. Mm-hmm. And I think like like the cable car fight, I think is still a lot of fun. And I think 
The thing about, like, I can see why Jaws was a very popular character among kids. Because, again, he has that larger-than-life persona. He has the metal teeth. Like, Bond punches him, and it's just metal all over. It feels like, you know, he just... I just and, like, he's huge. He's got a distinct look. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that, you know, it's just... I think well, like, he's, I, he's, he's good. Because one of the reasons I said about Jaws was, like, that character they infused with a lot of pretty decent comedy yeah. in his first appearance. And here they kind of really lean into it again, mm-hmm. where there's a scene in which Jaws is trying to kill James Bond and his lady friend, but they're constantly interrupted by a conga line coming through. <laughs> That's right. And the third conga line basically tra- traps Jaws and they basically carry Jaws with oh, him. And Jaws, <laughs> I kid you not, is like, no, no, no. All right. Yeah. <laughs> and then just starts partying with them. And then I was like, yeah, That's even, amazing. even the first one they do where it's like he has the woman he's about to bite her, he sees the conga line coming and he just pretends to dance with her. <laughs> and he has that like look where it's like, Oh, I'm dancing, I'm not definitely not killing this woman. Which is one of those things that as it goes on in the movie becomes more endearing. Cause it is kind of like, all right, this is a little goofy, but once that becomes more of a trait of the character. Yeah. And then, in retrospect, yeah. it becomes. It so what becomes I was going to really get good. to, yeah, but you're right, that does happen first. Yeah. Um, but one of the things I was going to get to is, so he bonds to the cable car down. Jaws tell another person, make it go faster, make it go faster. But it basically, goes too fast, and Jaws crashes into basically kind of the, I guess, the equivalent of like the 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 loading place or the restaurant that like the cable car is attached to or whatever. And he falls down, he brushes himself off, or like he's stuck in this wheel, and this woman comes up, and he's like, oh my gosh, someone's hurt. And so she helps him out of this wheel, and they have a love at first sight moment. Her, yes. name, her name is Dolly, by You're the right. way. Um, and uh, so they have a love at first sight, and like that traditional sweeping love music. <laughs> and they just walk off together. <laughs> yeah. And then the next time you see Jaws is then when he's in like Hugo's. Well, there he goes killing again. Yeah, he, he's in Hugo's uh, lair when Bond's fighting that giant snake. Yeah, yeah. And like. Oh, yeah, he does fight a giant snake, which I was very happy that it wasn't a shark again. Yes. Um, I'm just. I, my my thing I'm going to get to. There's actually a couple like little decent things I do like kind of going forward. I actually quite enjoyed the third act of yeah. this movie a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sets were pretty good. Oh, the sets, like the visual. Again, yeah. like here's the thing. So this is Gilbert's last Bond movie. Yeah. And we didn't really do it with Terrence Young, but I did a little bit of like kind of doing a big picture with, with Guy Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whereas like Ter- Terrence Young adds the coolness and the suave to the Bond character and Guy Hamilton really adds the comedy. Um, Lewis Gilbert is most effective at the big epicness of Bond and really setting a scope. The the only thing that was kind of like suspect was like when the base was collapsing and the walls are very like wobbly. Yeah, and I, and I get like maybe that that is kind of like what they were going for, but that was like the only one I was like, yeah. oh, that just kind of looks. And then a even weird. like so you have like so basically uh, you have a sequence where Bond uh, so. The reason that nobody knows about the satellite mm. is that uh, it has like a, a jamming signal that basically cloaks it right. from from the outside world. So Bond stops the jamming signal, and so all of a sudden this giant spacecraft appears on everybody's uh, screens, right. they, uh, everybody's like radar. Oh, and Hugo, uh, Drax has a great line. I forget the exact. Oh, I, ha- I think he, I have it written down. Have it written down. I, I'm going to botch it, but yeah. um, it's something the, to this. Extent. The line was something to this extent, and it was like this is actually a really great villain line, and it was something along the lines of you. It's like, Mr. Bond, you ruin all my amusing attempts at uh, 
at a death for you. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great villain line. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that 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 is a good line. And, and then it, even like their final showdown, like I was yeah. like, oh, this is like see, and this is where I was thinking, like, when this movie is pretty focused, it is I agree thoroughly yeah. entertaining. Yeah. Like I, I mean s- it, it is entertaining all the way through, but it, it is like actually effective. Yeah. Like all I would like, agree. the space I, stuff was I great. Think, I think like again, if you just kinda Cut down a little bit of the plot complications in the middle. Mm-hmm. I think, like, if you just streamline the movies just slightly, I think this would be one of the top solid Bond adventures. I just right. think that it kind. It, you're right. It just as much as there's entertaining stuff, it just kind of loses itself in the middle as it's trying to like justify going around the world stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that it just kind of slightly hurts the movie. It's to the point that like the movies I may have, this may be better than some of the other movies that I have above this. But that's also because, like, some of the movies above this may also just be so recognizably goofy mm-hmm. <laughs> that I may enjoy that. Because, like, this movie isn't even really goofy enough to be endearing. Right. It has, like, those... It has double-take pigeon moments. Yeah. But, like, it's but not it, like... It, it's entertaining when... It's really entertaining when it needs to be, mm-hmm. but it's kind of a little too padded out yeah. to be Yeah, their final showdown is great, especially when Drax gets uh, Hans Grubert uh, out the airlock. Oh yeah, he does. No, but that was crazy because like Bond, as I as I think we have mentioned before, is a cold blooded murderer. Despite that, like you know, you like we joke about like how he doesn't want to kill when he doesn't have to, but like he shoots him with this like it's basically Spider Man's web shooters, but for like poisonous darts. Mm-hmm. And he shoots the uh, he shoots Drax with one of them, and that's going to kill him. But then he throws him out the airlock. Do you really need to throw him out the airlock? He's going to die in 30 take no seconds. Chances, Will. And real quick, that reminds me of uh, the rest of the MI6 team. Q is always great. It's great to get another gadget. Oh, and the, the bolas? The, the bol- oh, the bolas were awesome. I was so mad we didn't get to see them. It's basically these bolas that you throw them and they wrap around the dude's neck and then it explodes. I'm like, that's awesome. Balls, Q? Yeah, and then there's the uh, there's the homeless dude disguise that oh, yeah. like opens up and it's a machine gun. Yeah, but once again, I have to ask you, you know, may he rest in peace. M, does he hate Bond or does he want to have sex with him? <laughs> I ask you this because he is so aggressive to Bond for no reason, but clearly likes him enough. Like where I can't tell. Like, does he hate him? But he's like, ah, but I mean, you get the job done. He likes done. him enough that, like, he tells him, like, so when they have the whole thing where, because Bond, earlier in the movie, goes to, like, uh, the lab and sees everybody die. Yeah. And when they go back to the lab, it's just, Hugo Drax is just there, and he's like, he embarrasses. He, he, yeah, he, and he gives him, like, off-the-book information where oh. he's like, go, he's like, he's like maybe go here, but, you know, keep did it you, Did you recognize the musical notes at the beginning of, that he goes into the... Oh, uh, yeah, it was Close Encounters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah of yes. course. Yes. So, <laughs> How, uh... You, I'm almost insulted. <laughs> you, of course, it's close encounters. <laughs> yeah. So uh, because uh, Spielberg's a big Bond fan, yeah. when Cubby asked if he could use the those only things, thing they didn't do was say "May the Force be with yeah. you" in this movie. Because <laughs> oh, also when uh, so I'll say, I'll say this first. So he Cubby asked Spielberg because and Spielberg's a big Bond fan. He's like, of course. And then Spielberg asked Cubby later if he could use the Bond theme in the Goonies, and Cubby said, "Yeah, yeah." Uh, but also they do play uh, the beginning of um, the. The main theme of uh, 2001 and Drax's uh, when they're shooting stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. They also hear that, but yeah, they don't. They don't have any st- direct Star Wars allusions. Um, yeah. So I guess like with that, there's only one thing to talk about. <laughs> the the very end. The very end. 
the very end. hundred percent our quote for this movie. There's it, no other. We've choice. already played the quote, but it's the in the top ten, maybe top five Bond lines ever. Like movies in a like lines in a Bond movie. So basically, they they win at the end of the day mm-hmm. in a pretty like decent. Like, you know, they have to fly around the Earth and shoot these bombs out of the air. It's right, three. Right, because it's like the whole planet yeah. is but it's like they he released three, and any one of them will kill millions of people. Right, yeah. And, so, it, you know, I agree. It's a very, like, it's a nice sequence of tension. Like, it, it's of, like, definitely... Them, like, he's just like, he's got to get yeah. there, and they're having they're having all these issues, and then they they can't get out of the dock, and then Jaws and uh, uh, Dolly are, like, uh, confined to their death, and Jaws has his one oh, line. Oh, oh, that was the biggest thing about, like, so we didn't mention, because Jaws has that moment where... Cause Oh, Bond right, right, basically right. gets Jaws on his side because Jaws is like his henchman. But you then they reveal the plan where he's making this master race of like the perfect people, and then, and then, and then Bond, Bond kind of like inav- said, not inadvertently, but like coyly gets Jaws, Jaws on his side. Jaws, Jaws to realize like oh like he's going to kill you essentially because like yeah. you're not part of the master race, right? Exactly. And so Jaws yeah. kind of helps Bond. He turns on Drax, and so Bond or Jaws and Dolly are having like champagne. And they're kind of resigned uh, to their death. Right. And then Jaws has his his first line, his first and only line in the series. Well, here's to us. <laughs> um, and it's so goofy. Yeah. It, uh, so, but, which which I had also mentioned. I did like that Jaws got her a job because <laughs> she was just like so, working at machines. She was a farmer like a day ago. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but then the, Jaws helps uh, Jaws and Dolly help Bond and Holly get off. Uh, the station with the in the skate pod, mm-hmm. and then actually helps Jaws and Dolly survive if mm-hmm. they're confirmed that they survive uh, at the end of the movie. Yeah, uh, but so so. Oh, but I was gonna say like, and then the ending it is it's a little by the numbers in that it's like all right, like it's it's the automatic aiming. We get the first one. It's like all right, the second one that's close. It's like oh no, we're running into to the Earth's atmosphere. There's some problems. I got to do it manual. So, but maybe, it all works. maybe that is that's our Star Wars reference. <laughs> Targeting computer. <laughs> yes, it. <laughs> there it That's is. That's true. That's the Star Wars. I want to edit that scene now, where it's like he goes to manual targeting, and you just edit in Obi Wan saying like, "Use the Force." <laughs> Bond, you turned off your targeting computer. Why? All right. So yeah, uh, but yes, and then the end comes, and well, <laughs> literally, <laughs> and the the um. The American and the British uh, intelligence or whatever, yeah. they are on the ground and they're like, oh, Bond and... Bond uh, did it. He did it. Bond did it. Like, we're patching you through to the camera to him to uh, thank him right now. Right, it's so like, we're, excellent. We're going to we're gonna patch it into the White House and Buckingham Palace. Everybody's going to see Everybody's going to see it, yeah. <laughs> and then it opens up, the camera opens up, and they are uh, in... Uh, zero G. They, they are in zero G post-coitus, it seems like. <laughs> or maybe, yeah. Or maybe mid- who Maybe knows? mid-coitus. And somebody says, what is he doing? To which Q responds, I believe he's attempting re-entry. <laughs> I, and it is one of the best lines in Bond, nay, all cinema. <laughs> it's really good. I'm glad Q got that moment. Oh, and then Bond, so Bond looks at the camera and he's just like... Oh, oh, hello. And then shuts it off. And then the last line was it, take me around the world once more, James. It's like, I guess we should, it's like, yeah, I guess we should return. It's like, take me around the world one more yeah. time. And you know, and the thing is like, and it's funny 
it, it's legitimately funny and endearing and kind of like yeah. it, it you can get on board with it again. I know I've said this many times, but it none of it is gross. Mm-hmm. And that is a big win as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I enjoyed talking about this. Yeah. I it actually kind of maybe rose up my ranking. Yeah, a little I think bit I actually enjoyed it. it a little bit more. The thing is like I do enjoy it, but the problem I will think that I have with it is that at the end of the day, like if it comes down, because it's one of those movies where it's like, oh yeah, I like all these things about it, but then I think about like rewatching the whole thing again. You know what I mean? Oh no, I get, I get you. Uh, it, I, I, like I said, I think it's for me. It's like one of those ones. I it's it's one of those ones I used to put on rotation before yeah. doing a podcast. It's, it's one of the easier watches. It's, we it's, had. it's a simple watch because it's one of those ones that yeah, you lose it a little bit, but you can you can always look up and find something to see. Yeah, it's it's padded. But it's never tedious. Right. Is it's what, not is what I would say about it's it. It's not, uh, you know, you only live twice. It's yeah. not a thunderball. It's nice. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, right now it's uh, kind of like in the high middle for me, but it, it may range. Yeah, we'll probably see. around the same. Words. Now that I've talked about it, we'll see where it ranks. Yeah, probably but, around the same for me. But favorable. Yeah, favorable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Aftermath. Oh yeah. Quickly. I thought you were asking. <laughs> yeah, go yeah. ahead. All right. So the film released on June twenty sixth, nineteen seventy nine, um, in the UK, and not too shortly after in the United States. Um, this was at the time the highest grossing Bond movie of all time. The sci-fi uh, craze, the switch to Moonraker paid off for them. It made uh, $210 million worldwide, which mm-hmm. is even a significant leap over the previous record holder, which was Thunderball. Um, quickly, I have some reviews. The reviews of this movie were generally mixed, mm-hmm. um, but they were mixed in the sense of not like, oh, it's like, okay, it's like some people really liked it and some people really hated it. Mm-hmm. The general gist of it was that people loved the special effects, and in fact, this movie was nominated for a visual effects award. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. At that uh, yeah, I would say it's pretty impressive. Um, but I do have some reviews here, quickly. New York Times, Vin, uh, Vincent Canby said... Uh, one of the most buoyant Bond films of all time. Almost everyone connected with the movie is in top form. Even Mr. Moore, he is as ageless, resourceful, and graceful as a character he inhabits. Uh, and Did he, he say ageless? Yes, he did. Uh, he's going to regret that yes. in, the, in the next coming Bond movie. Um, and he's, he put it up right alongside Goldfinger as yeah. one of the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, same thing with Jay Scott. He says, second only to Goldfinger. Um in the first few minutes before the credits, it offers more thrills than most escapist movies provide in two hours. And the incitement goes all the way up to Gideon and never comes down with that opening sequence. Um, but then we have some bad reviews here. Um, it's some, some of the modern critics right at the bottom, but uh, critic Nicholas Sylvian said, Moonraker seems to have more than its share of little flaws and annoyances, which begin right from the opening pre-credits sequence. The sheer idiocy of having a full field shell on the back of a Boeing during a transatlantic crossing should be evident, even though it is something that's real. Yeah, so, I was about to say. Like, yeah. So that guy's... It's a really weird visual, though. Like, you would... Like, again, like, it's kind of one of those things that does... Yeah. It doesn't seem real. <laughs> and then he said, later in the film, the whole Jaws falls in love and becomes a good guy routine, leaves me rather cold, and provides far too much cheesy comedy moments, as does the gondola driving through the square sequence. Uh... <laughs> Roger Ebert loved the uh, special effects, but he says it's so jammed with faraway places and science fiction special effects that Bond has to move to a trot just to make it to all the scenes. Uh, and then uh, Danny Perry, who loved The Spy Who Loved Me, hated this movie. He said the worst James Bond film to date has Roger Moore walking through the paces for his hefty paycheck and giving way to his double for a series of unimaginative action sequences and quote-unquote humorous chases. Uh, 
Not only is Jaws so pacified by love that he becomes a good guy, but the filmmakers also have the gall to set the finale in outer space and stage a battle right out of Star Wars. <laughs> you know, I will say because, you know, mentioned the kind of like going through a paycheck role. I, I still think Moore is really is given it. In, in no, no, movies. I think he's so great. I think, I think he's so great. Will he remain great? We'll yeah, see. Yeah. Um, now, was that pigeon? How did this do with the pigeon audiences? Because now my theory is that pigeon was a stunt cast. <laughs> Maybe that was a famous pigeon. I'll have to look that up. So well. you can either answer that question or my next question, which is, who is Harrison Ford in this movie? Because uh, Har- I, I have an idea. Harrison Ford, to me, it's like it seems obvious, but he, he's definitely like someone in control or like like the leadership of like the astronaut team that mm-hmm. goes out. He is Jaws' girlfriend's father. Ooh, that's a nice. <laughs> he, this is who, who works at the farm, and he's like, "Bring her back." <laughs> uh, so, but off of that, just one last aftermath thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the final appearance of Jaws in the franchise. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was intended to come back for the next movie. Uh, which was going to feature uh, Jaws and Dolly's wedding and have <laughs> and have Jaws as an official ally of MI6. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But oh, that would have been fun. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we'll talk about it next time. But changes to uh, the next movie kind of made that drop. But Jaws, to many, is still one of the best henchmen and one of the most endearing henchmen with with one of the the only one that appears in two movies. Right. Uh, and he's still a very fan favorite to yeah. this day among audiences, and so iconic. Again, Richard Keel has just parodied that persona his, on his own, but that the Jaws character has been right. parodied and, and homage to so many times. Right. So, all right, that's all I have to say. Yeah. So next time, uh, we're yeah. What is the next movie? So, uh, so remember, it was announced before. Now we're finally going to get to it. The next modern movie is uh, for your eyes only. And as I mentioned before, now they are out of Bond books they can have since they don't own Casino Royale just yet. Uh, so we're going to be moving on to the Bond short stories. So it'll be interesting to see how they might adapt those. But next time, it's not going it's to be not Bond. a Bond movie. We're going to get back to Godzilla. The first Godzilla movie of the year. Of 2018. And, uh, you know, Nick, what, what, what do you do you have a strong stance on pollution? You pollution know? is bad. Yeah. Well, you know, that's... That's very apt because that is what Godzilla is fighting in the next in the next movie as we fu- as we are about to watch Godzilla versus the Smog Monster. Sounds good. AKA Godzilla versus Hedora. Hedora. Um so yeah, until then I'm I'm done. I'm we're All done. Right. Plugs. Bonzilla. <laughs> The break is showing. Yeah. <laughs> the, the I usually have, yeah. Showing. Well, we have an email, bonzillapod yeah, at yeah. gmail.com, twitter.com slash bonzilla007, facebook.com slash bonzilla007. Like and subscribe, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Yeah. All right. Until next time. He's Will. I'm Will, and I'm done. And I'm Nick. Yeah. And yeah, this is my least favorite of the Shirley Bassey songs, but it's still good. Move.